Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Uh, we've been doing these SALT Talks, which are a series of digital interviews during the work from home period in lieu of our global conference series. What we really try to do is replicate the type of thought leadership uh, that we provide at those conferences, which is providing our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as providing a platform for what we think are big world-changing ideas. And today, we're very pleased to welcome Peter Malouk to SALT Talks. Uh, Peter is the president of Creative Planning Incorporated and its affiliated companies. Uh, Creative Planning provides comprehensive wealth management services to clients, including investment management, financial planning, charitable planning, retirement plan consulting, tax service, and estate planning services. Uh, investment, management is at, investment management is at the core of the services of creative planning, and they have almost $50 billion in assets under management uh, as of July 30th. Uh, creative planning has customized tailored portfolio solutions for clients in all 50 states, and I know some international clients as well. Uh, Peter's leadership in the industry has not gone unnoticed. He was one of the pioneers of the independent RIA model. Um, He's the only person to have ranked number one on Barron's top 100 independent financial advisors in America list for three straight years in 2013 through 2015. He's also appeared on the cover of Worth Magazine's 2017 and 2018 issues of the Power 100, which is a list of the most powerful men and women in global finance. And in 2017, New York Times wrote that, quote, creative planning is at the vanguard of a profound shift in finance. And I know we had Stephanie Link from Hightower on uh, last week. If you caught that episode of Salt Talks, Peter is one of the pioneers of that independent RIA model that, that Hightower is another player in that space. Uh, Peter and his wife, Veronica, are passionate about giving back to their local community uh, in the Kansas City area. They're involved in many local and national efforts, mainly focused on providing help for the less fortunate. Uh, they've been honored for their tireless work with, with many causes. Uh, Peter graduated from the University of Kansas, so he's He's a homegrown star there in the Kansas City area in 1993 with four majors, including degrees in business administration and economics. Uh, he went on to earn a law degree and an MBA in 1996, also from the University of Kansas. He's also earned his certified financial planner uh, practitioner designation. So in addition to being a business exec executive, he's also a, a CFP. Uh, Peter and his wife, Veronica, reside in Leewood, Kansas with their three children, uh, Michael, JP, and Gabby. A reminder, if you have any questions for Peter during today's talk, uh, please post them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, uh, as well as the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Uh, John, thank you, Peter. It's great to have you on, even though I'm still sore at you for the 2000. 15 World Series situation. You know, you guys <laughs> just ripped through and destroyed my Mets. So I just want you to know that uh, that feeling is still with me, Peter. It's still with me. The, the pain is still with me. But uh, I, want you to, I want you to take it back. You know, my, my, uh, my colleagues uh, often say to me, don't ask people about their backgrounds because you can find it on Wikipedia. But I find that to be the most interesting part of people's stories. You Tell us something we're not going to find on Wikipedia about you, your family, how you grew up, how you got to where you are, by the way. Congratulations on your, your great success. But tell us something that we wouldn't learn from Wikipedia about you. I think probably what you wouldn't learn, and I think this is not really my story, but uh, I, 
the the people I'm most impressed with are immigrants, like people that come to the United States and have a lot of success. And if you really look at that group of people, uh, they're off the charts in terms of what they accomplish. Because if you can leave India or Southeast Asia or Africa and find your way through all of that and come to the United States, it's kind of a cakewalk when you get here because you know someone else has has done a lot of the hard work and then you've taken that leap. So I'm fortunate that you know two people did all of that for me, right? So my my parents. So you've got the kind of the best case scenario, I think, um, as an American, is to not have had to be the person that had to have the guts to do all of that. And I really question. Uh, I, I think I would have never done that. I. I grew up uh, 10 miles from where my uh, church, my school, my office, um, 40 minutes from where I went to college, I went, wherever I was born, I was going to be. Um, but that wasn't my parents' attitude. And that's the story of you know millions of Americans. So when they came to the States, it really became um, the kind of the best case scenario, because you got to see people that really appreciated all the things that you know the United States has to offer, that really understood how tough it could be. Uh, in other parts of the world and has sacrificed everything, like all their friends, all their family. They were the only ones to come here. And so it really gave me a different mindset growing up. I mean, that mindset to me, uh, if there was one thing, if you took it out of me, I wouldn't be where I was. It would just be that was was just that, you know, that good, uh, that good fortune. And that, that to me is the the difference. And I'm forever grateful for that. And every year that goes by, I appreciate it more. It's also given me incredible insight into our clients. So many of our clients uh, that are have reached the top of their profession in the United States in business or medicine or whatever, they're immigrants. And it's interesting to watch what they invest in versus just, you know, third or fourth generation Americans. I mean, they will pay every penny of education all the time, right? From whatever they need to do all the way through, if the kid needs help or is advanced, tutors, 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 when they're in college, they'll pay for all of it, four years, eight years, six, whatever. It's just the things that they value and invest in. I, I can understand it uh, better uh, as well. So it's helped professionally too. Well, I mean, you, you're also the pioneer in many ways of this independent RA model. It's uh, one of the fastest growing. Uh, your firm is one of the fastest growing in the space, but the RA model in general is a very fast growing concept. And so, but you're you're an early pioneer. So tell us about your early vision, what came to maturation for you, and where are things going now for RIAs and for your firm? Yes, there were some very delayed aha moments for me. So I was an advisor to other advisors for the first six to eight years of my career. I would do legal work for them, give tax advice if someone was selling a business. Uh, and I really was doing that for other advisors. So I'd go to an insurance company, a brokerage house, or an independent firm, and I would do that for them. And after six years of that, eight years of that, depending on how, how much uh, you count of my first years, I've, I realized that, hey, you know, sometimes products are being sold that don't make sense. You know, why is it that this one company is selling their clients their own products? You just really got a firsthand seat at the conflict, like in a really big way. I mean, I saw it. I had probably worked with over 50, 100 to 100 firms. Um, and I really thought, you know, this is an interesting space. I mean, there's just embedded conflict. Somebody comes in, pays an advisor a fee, and then gets sold their product, or then also buys a product on commission, or winds up with an annuity. It just seemed 
strange. And I didn't have a vision of I'm going to fix this space. I just said, well, I don't want to be a participant in that space anymore. So I'd like to have a firm that's independent and doesn't have their own products and doesn't work on commission and so on. I also knew that it would be nice to be able to look at a client's entire wealth picture. So if you've got somebody who's worth a few million dollars or 10 or a hundred million dollars, it's nice if you can earn 1% more for them or 2% more for them. But if you can save them hundreds of thousands or tens of millions in estate taxes or capital gains taxes, that's where you're really moving the needle. And that was really my background was that tax and law component of things. So the idea was to have a firm that really did everything it could to grow and protect and transfer the wealth of our clients and also manage the money in as conflict-free a way as possible. And that's how we got going here and, and really didn't have our sights set on uh, being the leader in the industry. But as time went on, it became clear that we had an opportunity to do that. And, and but let, let, let's talk about that independence and that lack of conflict and how it balances up against others that you're competing against. So, so go ahead, pitch me. I'm your client. I'm coming in, <laughs> All right. I'm coming in for, with $100 million. And go ahead, Peter, why am I using you guys? All right, $100 million, you know, you're probably looking at, you've got two choices, right? If I was right? John Darcy, I'd be coming in with $300 million. That's it, I'm only me. I'll I'm take you and your $100 million. That'll work great. Go ahead, show. go ahead, Peter. All right, you're going to sell the Mets, right? We're going to have some big cash coming in. We're going to have to have a conversation later. Amen. Uh, so, all right, we're going to, what we do is, you're, you're basically, you've got two choices. You've got the brokerage world and the independent world, right? And the brokerage world is the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachs and, great companies, and they've got some great products. You're going to go pay them a fee to manage your money, and you're probably going to wind up with their products. That's just what's going to happen. Or in the products of people that pay revenue sharing. Uh, or you might go to the independent world and say, hey, I want a fiduciary. I'm going to go hire an independent wealth manager. And 95, 99% of those firms uh, don't even manage as much money as you have, right? So there's not scale or breadth and depth. So here you've got creative planning, that at 50 billion in assets under management, clients in all 50 states, 100 people that come to work every day that work just in our legal and tax teams, we are going to be able to give you that breadth and depth that somebody like you requires, but we're not going to be selling your own products. But we have access to all uh, what we consider the top investments and in alternative investment space and other spaces if they're applicable to you. So the key here is to a high net worth investor, really any investor, deserves to get the expertise without paying the price of conflict. And that's where I think we sit today. And you're doing a lot more private equity as well, right? No way, I just pitched you. Did I, are you closed? Are you going to get a sign on yeah, now? I'm going to call you, I'm gonna call you, I'm gonna call you afterwards. So, by the way, I think, I think your pitch is very compelling. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just teasing. You know, that yeah, my, I, my problem I, is because I, I deal with every single person in the universe uh, and all my money stuck in my fund. You know? Right, right. I'm that's, just, that's I'm just problem. joking. But, but I, I, I appreciate what you're saying a lot. But I want to go. I want to go to another question. Uh, Darcy's itching to get in here, so before he steals all of my thunder, Peter, I got to ask a few more questions. Uh, you're doing a lot more in private equity, and private equity is flowing through RIAs and through uh, creative planning. Uh, what's your thought there? Why, well, I think there's. I mean, why, why are we doing more there? Well, I think that first, when we started, we couldn't go get our clients top shelf private equity, right? We couldn't call a private equity firm and say, we manage $5 billion. We want access to your 
to your fund, that's a conversation where we had to be at, you know, 25, 35, 40 billion to be able to say, hey, we have enough very high net worth clients to have access. We really couldn't offer best in class until recently. And that's a part of it. We don't want to offer anything unless we think we can really offer best in class. Now, I think in terms of the space, what's happening is people are scared of the stock market, which I, I, but they feel better in alternatives and private equity is considered an alternative. Now, I don't buy into that, you know, on its face. I mean, they're all equities, right? Some are public equities and some are private equities. And this idea that you're safer if you go from public equities to private equities is on its face ridiculous. But, you know, for whatever reason, pensions and universities and so on don't think so. I do think private equity adds value. I do think that if you, their managers matter a lot. And if you get a good history, a good management team, you've got a pretty good chance of doing better than the public alternatives. So I like having private equity if you have access to very, very top funds and top managers. And you, you see more demand from that, from especially uh, more affluent, uh, at least we do, from more affluent co- clients. Now, there's 8,300 private equity funds. You know, that was a statistic from a few months ago. So today, there's probably 9,300 because they're just sprouting up everywhere uh, because of the demand. I think we're going to see a bloodbath across the space at some point with all of the leverage that's taking place and all the money that's chasing deals is driving up valuations. And I think people need to be really selective about who they're partnering with in that, in that space if they don't want to be part of that. Yeah, well, I, we, we, we agree. Do you, in your firm, do you sometimes do special purpose vehicles for your clients as well if opportunities come up? We don't because we, we don't package deals ourselves um, for our clients. So we're always looking for a third party. And that way we are never married to a manager. Like if we it. don't, we don't like one place, we just remove yeah. them and go somewhere else. That, that, that goes to your conflict free uh, philosophy. Okay. So that, that totally right. makes sense. Yeah. Um, when, when you're looking at the fixed income space now, and yields are obviously very, very depressed. Um, and you have older clients that need income off of their corpus. Uh, what do you say to these people? You know, I just, uh, tweeted this morning that yield without risk does not exist. And I, I people, I just keep getting this question from clients now. Hey, how do I get more yield without taking additional risk? How do I get more yield without t- taking additional risk? It simply does not exist. Everywhere people think it exists, they are someday going to pay a price. And so I think what you have to, the, the premise for this is you have to start by accepting you're not going to get more yield without taking more risk. So now all of a sudden, I'm moving closer to equity-like risk than I am bond risk, regardless of what the packaging of the product is. And if you accept that, you start to wonder why you're just not in equities or alternatives to begin with. Because if you're going to take the risk, you may as well pay capital gains instead of income. You may as well uh, participate in all of the upside instead of part of it. And I think that's the real story, is that we're going to see a move away from yield-oriented investments that are perceived as low, low risk towards riskier asset classes. Well, how do you how do you feel about a package of higher yielding stocks, dividend yielding stocks? Well, I think they've. I mean, I think they. I had owned those before I owned high yield bonds because I'm going to get the upside, and uh, I'm going to get the upside in a much more significant way. And either way, I'm going to get the downside. I think you have interest rate sensitivities. So if you believe we're eventually going to have higher inflation, you can suffer there. Uh, and you tend to be more value oriented. And as we know, there can be very long periods of time where value uh, can underperform. So there can be some unintended consequences in terms of correlation with the market and everything else. But for someone who wants income, they're very, very focused on income. 
I, if that's your overriding factor, then I like them. Make, make, makes sense to me. Um, active management, underperforming passive management. I ask everybody this question because I'm trying to figure it out myself. I don't honestly have the answer, uh, but man, over the last 10, 12 years, passive management has by far beaten active management. Is that a permanent thing now? Uh, or the, is that going to be really litigated post COVID-19 or what, what's your view? Well, I think that, I think since, you know, 1980, uh, passive has beaten active most of the time for longer periods of time, but usually by a narrow margin. Um, and what I think is an anomaly that's happened in the last five to 10 years is these, you know, five or 10 very large big tech companies that are in the S&P 500 they, it's the Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, we know what they are. They make up almost a fourth of the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 a day is about 505 companies. Five of them are a fourth of it. The other 500 are three-fourths of it. Those five have outperformed dramatically all the other stocks, lifting up the index. So passive management looks like it's not beating active. It looks like it's destroying active. Uh, but it's really not. If you take those few stocks out, it's just beating it by a little bit, like it always does. So to me, where you're going to see the story change, and I think active will be oversold, is whenever these five stocks underperform for whatever reason. They just simply can't become, you know, instead of one and a half trillion dollar companies, let's say they can't become $10 trillion companies, they can't continue to grow at 35% a year. Eventually, something will happen, whether it's regulatory or market forces or whatever. And when those stall or slow down or, you know, God forbid, go down, everyone's going to celebrate active. And not only will they celebrate active, the passive people that own small caps will go back to celebrating small caps. Foreign investors will go back to celebrating foreign. This discrepancy between, between the international and U.S., large and small, active and passive, it's not really what it is. It's really a discrepancy between these five stocks uh, and everything else. And until those turn, uh, then we'll see the narrative change. So, you know, client, let's talk about that perspective client again, because I think this is, you have a fascinating read on all this. This perspective client walks in and says, okay, Peter, I get that there's a low yields. I get that there are five stocks driving the market, but I'm super worried about deficit spending. I'm super worried about the Federal Reserve's uh, inducing markets the way it is. Should I be worried about all that? Should I be worried about $25 trillion of deficit spending at the U.S. level, uh, you know, likely a, a, a $3 trillion deficit next year as well. Is this stuff I need to be worried about or, I, or do deficits not matter and life just goes on for me and my family? What do you say? So what's interesting, I read a quote when I was a teenager and I was fascinated by it and I had written it down in uh, a notepad I had at school and I can't, I can't even Google my way to who said this. But it was someone in Russia, and it was in the 1900s, and they said, we're not going to have to fire a bullet to take over the world because Great Britain is going to expand itself out of existence. Germany is going to militarize itself out of existence. And the United States is going to spend itself out of existence. How, what an amazing, you know, two of those three things have happened now. It's not Russia that's there ready to take everything over. It's a much, I think, more worrisome communist regime in, in China. But I think deficit spending is a real problem. Now, I think... I think the, the Fed has gotten away with it, and whoever pres the president has been has gotten away with it. And they've gotten away with it first because we had explosive growth because of the tech revolution that allowed us to carry this huge debt because just incredible uh, innovation and growth. Now, 
we have these incredibly low rates. So yeah, the mortgage on the million dollar house has gone from 500,000 to a million, but the, the mortgage on the house has gone from 6% to 0.6%. So the debt's a little easier uh, to carry, but we're running out of bullets here. There's no way you can dance around it. And the problem with our system is a democracy doesn't lend itself to fixing a problem like this, right? Because it's going to have to be fixed really not by the Fed, but by president and Congress, all of whom don't want to control certain expenditures because they would be voted out if they did it. So the way we solve things in democracy is we wait till it's an absolute crisis, then we do something because then all the senators and congressmen and president can go back to their constituents and say, well, it's better than what the alternative was. But here it's too complex, it's too big to do something like that. I think this is a solvable problem. It's going to take some modicum of political courage that combines uh, you know, some common sense tax rates with with uh, Social Security reform and spending across the board that really makes both parties mad, you know, all the way from uh, Social Security to defense spending. It's actually remarkably doable. If you look at like if you look at how easy it is to fix you know, Social Security, for example, it's almost crazy how easy it is to fix. You push out the retirement date a few years when Social Security started, the, the expected date of death was the age Social Security started. Now, when you get Social Security, you're expected to live 10, 20, 30 years longer. So just moving that date up a little bit, uh, having it be taxed a little more on, on, on people like uh, you and me, having the contribution rate go up just 2%, that's all you need to solve all of Social Security. So we can solve all these problems. It's just going to take some combination of political courage. Neither party has that or has shown that they can do that. And even when you have one party want to raise taxes, they immediately allocate those dollars to new spending, right? Like if you look at uh, Biden, he's saying if he wins, he wants to raise taxes a little bit, but he wants to allocate it to new spending. So no statement on the politics of that, but the money part of that, we're not solving any of that deficit problem. You know, I'm very apolitical. I don't have a, a political opinion. I don't <laughs> share my views with anybody. So I appreciate you saying a statement of politics on that. Go ahead, John Dorsey. Go ahead. All right. I've been itching to get in here. Um, I want to go back to creative planning for a little bit. And operationally, what do you think has really driven your success? And I want to use the pandemic as an example. I know that you've been you know, somewhat outspoken about uh, not taking PPP loans from the government and, and uh, making pledges to your employees and sticking with your staff in a time of volatility. How do you think the way you operate your business translates to you know, a level of fiduciary care for your clients? And how have you guys approached the pandemic, both internally from an operational perspective and in terms of how you've communicated to clients? We talked a little bit uh, before we went live about how you know your role as an advisor is sort of half psychologist, half money manager. Well, I think in terms of like, if you look at a, a professional team or uh, I, I went to KU, so let's say the Kansas Jayhawks basketball team, the way a team wins a game is is most of it is recruiting. Right. When sports, we acknowledge that. Right. When when the KU basketball team gets on the field to play, you know, Pitt State, the game is over before the tip. No one expects a different. It's not always over, but it pretty much is by having the most talented people. There's something about financial services in our space where people just don't believe that they feel like people are commodities and you can swap people in and out. I don't believe that at all. I mean, to my core, I don't believe that. And I think that's the big differentiator. So I feel like when our team is sitting with a client versus another firm's team, if we lose, we screwed something up because we've got the better people in my mind. We've done everything we can to get those people. And if you believe you have the better people, 
you want to do everything you can to keep them happy. So, you know, that was interesting in our space when the coronavirus started. You know, I just, it was very, I wasn't really think much of it. I just said, look, everyone's got their job. Just, I don't care if this goes on for three years. We're not cutting pay for anybody. All the salaries are guaranteed. It was almost like, a, of course, this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, they're coming in doing the right thing for the client and the clients and the firm every day. And I'm going to do the right thing for them. But what it also does is it allows them to focus on the clients, right? They're not having to worry about other stuff. It allows them to focus on their clients. Now, what wound up being nice is, to my knowledge, no other independent firm in the country, certainly of scale, made any kind of commitment to their clients like that. And so I think it also gave, gave me a chance to you know, prove to our team, look, it's one thing for me to say to you uh, that I believe in you and I think you're great and, and I want to keep you here. It's a whole other thing for me to have an opportunity to prove it. I view the same thing with the clients going through the pandemic. Um, you, when you go through things like this, and, and 08, 09 was another one of them, it's really an opportunity to show your clients, hey, I told you this is what we're going to do with your portfolio when the market's down, and we're doing it. Uh, we told you that if there were financial opportunities available to you, we have a lot of restaurant owners as clients, a lot of people in the medical field, we helped them figure out the CARES Act. We helped them figure out the PPP loans. We did everything we could uh, to be there for our clients. And so I really viewed it as an opportunity to do those things. And so for, for us, from the very beginning to today, it's been offense, 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 uh, instead of just trying to hold the, the place together. You've started creative planning, you know, not obviously as a businessman, you wanted to grow a business, but you, you started it really because it was the right thing to do. And you were a pioneer in the space, as we mentioned in the open. But as of late, there's been a lot of investment capital that's flowed into the independent RIA world. And there are some secular forces that are driving the flow of that capital. What about the independent RIA model do you think is so attractive? What are those, those forces driving the, the really rapid growth in the space? Well, I think you have a couple of different things. So they can, the private equity space, to your point, there's other forces happening that just make private equity you know, very, a very strong space. More people are trying to access it. More institutions are, are moving money to it. Uh, they benefit, they, they buy companies, they borrow money, so they benefit from lower interest rates. So you have a bunch of money going into private equity. It's easy for them to borrow, borrow very large, large amounts of money at low rates, which amplifies returns. So you have that in the background, right? So then they're going to buy businesses that are private. They want them to be of a, of a decent size. And they like to be where money is moving, right? Where business is moving. And money is moving from the brokerage world to the independent world. People are getting more sophisticated and they're going, you know what? Why am I going to go pay this advisor to sell me a, a mutual fund or sell me an annuity or put me in their funds? So we're seeing market share move over to the independent world every year. We're also seeing it in the ultra affluent space happen now more than ever, where you have people worth 10 million, 25 million, 100 million, 500 million going to RAs. Why were they not doing that five, 10 years ago? Because there weren't any big RAs, right? Now there are a couple like creative planning that manage, you know, 50 billion and they feel comfortable coming over and going, look, I get that independence and I can get it um, with breadth and depth of services. So private equity is looking at this space and saying, well, we've got this, um, the market moving in that direction. Uh, and so the market force is moving in that direction. And there's no signs it's going otherwise. It seems like there's not, it's like there's five choices. It's the broker's world or the independent world and the money's moving to the independent world. So they love to be in a growth oriented space. They intuitively understand wealth management. Um, and so I think that that combination of things has attracted people. The other thing I'd say that, that's happening that's going to change is there really hasn't been a spectacular failure in this space, right? So most private equity in this space is buyout equity, meaning they come buy the whole company or almost all of the company. 
And they really started doing this after the 0809 crisis. Well, the markets has done nothing but go up uh, for the last 12 years. And so everybody at every private equity firm that bought an RIA, an independent firm, you know, they're just high-fiving each other within the five years, you know, like that's the, the something amazing, right? And the reality is, I think if this coronavirus crisis had, had stayed at March levels for nine months, we would have seen several spectacular blow-ups uh, in the RIA space from over-leveraged uh, larger RIAs, 10 billion and up. And I think the math of the space might've changed and the attractiveness of it might've changed. But of course, with the Fed coming in and the coronavirus, you know, the mortality rate not being 3% instead being 0.5 or lower really changed the math on all of that. And the private equity is stronger than ever here. So we talked about how equity markets are pretty fully valued. They've rebounded very quickly. Uh, from that March sell-off. So as you look at portfolio construction for clients, has the pandemic changed the way you think about the long-term portfolio construction? And also, what do you view as the role of alternative investments? We talked about the rotation you know, that, that happens cyclically between passive and active management. As you're building client portfolios, how do you look at alternatives like hedge funds and other active products to, to diversify a portfolio? So in the public markets, we we definitely favor passive investments. In the bond markets, a lot of our clients are individual bonds. Some are funds. Some are some are ETFs. We we are very big advocates of alternative investments. We lean very heavily towards private equity, private lending, private real estate. I think you know sixty forty. We had sent an email out to our firm and had a, a call around that being dead over five years ago uh, when rates had, had dropped. And now we're talking about 70-30 is dead. I mean, I just you just can't get the return a lot of people are trying to get when bond yields are between 0.6 and 2.5% and where you're taking some serious risk uh, to go beyond that. So I think what we're seeing at Creative Planning is we're seeing a strong commitment to the passive space, even though I think it's dramatically skewed by the big five uh, big tech companies. We continue to stay global. There will be a rotation back to international. We continue to stay invested in large and small. There's 100% of the time been a rotation back to small. I think that will eventually happen. I certainly don't know when and wish I did. Those things we're still committed to. We still believe in bonds if you have to have money in the next five years. The reality is, if you have to have the money in the next five years, we don't want to be reaching for yield. But we're more committed to alternatives than ever as we try to fill that gap in the portfolio to not have everything be so correlated, try to get returns from different places. So we have a, an audience follow-up question you know, regarding your earlier comments about private equity, how you have an expectation there will be some level of a washout in primary private equity. Do you think that, you know, are you opportunistic in a way that you would try to find value in a secondary PE type of strategy? No. So I think we're, that's, pro for us, we've got a six to 10 key relationships with kind of the names everybody's heard of. We're committed to just working with them, reviewing theirs. And I think we try not to get too spread out in terms of what we're looking for. Although I do think that that, that viewer is on to something that we're going to see more of a secondary market emerge and a lot more activity happening there. Uh, it's going to be interesting when this illiquid investment be becomes more and more liquid as that market emerges. And I think that's an inevitability. Yeah, I know at Skybridge, we've looked at a few opportunities. There's some funds out there that are sort of funds of uh, closed-in funds. You know, you have a lot of closed-in funds that are trading at significant discounts, uh, given the turmoil in markets. And there's an opportunity to to invest in that mismatch of underlying assets to, right. to market value. Um, so I want to talk about the fiduciary rule for a little while. You, again, you started creative planning and removed those conflicts of interest because you thought it was the right thing to do. And you thought the business model 
was the best way to align the interests of the client and with the firm. Uh, there was a fiduciary rule under the Obama administration that that ended up uh, petering out, and, and there's been no move to resurrect it in the Trump administration. In a Biden administration, if he wins the election in November, do you, do you expect to see a revival of that conversation around standards of care? And how do you think that would affect the industry and the acceleration of trends toward independence that we're already seeing? I do think it'll. I, I do think it will come back if there's a Biden administration. But I, I also think unless we just get a very clear global standard, it really won't do anything to change the industry. I mean, all these little changes do is confuse people. You know, everyone's got to be a fiduciary on an IRA, but not on another investment or on the certain products, but not other products. And sometimes you can be a fiduciary and sometimes you can't. I mean, it's, the, the rules in this country are so unbelievably stupid that how is a consumer supposed to navigate it? I mean, our highest net worth clients don't understand it because nobody can understand how stupid the rules are. So unless they change the rule and say, every financial advisor is a fiduciary with investments all the time, it's not gonna do anything to clear up uh, the space. And do you have an expectation that that might happen in the next five to 10 years or you're not holding your breath and you're just worried about what you're doing over there? And Well, yeah, I'm not holding my breath. I think the financial services industry is an extremely powerful industry. And you just imagine if these big private banks, these big brokerage houses, if everyone that went to work at their office had to act to the best interest of their client every day, 80% of the funds would be gone. You just wouldn't be able to sell them anymore. And so, no, I don't. I don't think it's going. Uh, I don't think it's going away any, anytime soon. In terms of the makeup of the wealth management industry, you talked about the benefit of scale and and the the depth of expertise that exists at a large RIA like a Creative Planning. You know, the the industry was was a little bit uh, you know separated, and there's been some consolidation among independent RAs to create entities like Creative Planning, where where you have that that scale and expertise. Do you expect to see, as you see a continued exodus from the wirehouse world, do you expect to see sort of you know, new wirehouse type models emerge that just have fewer conflicts? Or, or how do you expect that evolution to take place in the wealth management world over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I think we're in the very early stages here. So you know, we talk about creative planning being large. I mean, at 50 billion, we're large in the independent space. But let's compare to custodians, Fidelity is $8 trillion and Schwab is $5 trillion. Or compare to the private banks, JP Morgan is, uh, I don't know, five plus to $10 trillion, uh, in assets, or the brokerage houses like Morgan & Merrill, trillions and trillions of dollars. When we say creative is a rounding error, it actually is a rounding error. I mean, like, it's, it's, not, it's totally negligible in the wealth management space. The market share is probably one one-thousandth of 1%. In the independent world, we're big. To your point, the independent world, what you're seeing is you're seeing these firms largely constructed by PE investors, where you have a firm that had five billion or maybe two billion, and then they bought 10 billion of other firms. So I call these firms Franken firms, right? Where they might share a brand, uh, but it's not, it's not one culture, it's not one offering, and it's just Morgan Stanley all over again. You know, you go to the Chicago office and the guy's trading options, you go to the Dallas office and maybe he's a passive guy and in New Jersey, they're the active guys. I mean, it's not one voice, it's not one philosophy, it's really just financial engineering, putting a bunch of people, firms together, buying them at a multiple of earnings, putting debt on it, putting them together, saying, I've got a, I've got a $30 billion firm and selling it to the next person. And Private equity will play that game and keep selling it to the next one, the next one, the next one, until somebody gets caught with the whole thing falling apart. That's what's going to happen 
I believe, in the independent wealth management space. There are very, very few independent firms that are actually a firm, right? Where they've got a philosophy and a, uh, an approach of doing things. I think they're going to survive uh, that washout. But I think that's where this, this side of the space is heading. The last question I want to ask you before I turn it back over to Anthony, and I'm hogging the spotlight as usual. So Anthony, I'm sure will give me a mean phone call after after the salt talk. But about your philanthropic work, I know you do a ton of philanthropic work. Like I mentioned, you went to University of Kansas or Kansas University, not just um, for undergrad. You got your MBA and other graduate degrees there. You and your wife, Veronica, are very active in the community. Talk about some of your philanthropic work and why that's so important to you. Well, I think that basically, obviously, you can't take it with you. And I've, I've gotten to see my client, you know, the kind of the bookends of seeing my my parents come from a very poor country, and then also seeing um, seeing uh, our clients. I mean, they what happens is they save, 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 pile up, pile up, pile up, and then they die, right? I mean, so the clients that I've learned a lot from are the ones that they enjoy giving while they're alive. You know, if they want their kids to have something, they they give it to them so they can see them enjoy it. If they uh, are passionate about a charitable cause, they do the giving themselves so that they can enjoy it. Um, it's, it's interesting because you see like people pile up their money and then they might put it in a foundation for their kids to give away and their kids either don't want to deal, deal with it or they have, they have uh, causes that are the opposite of what the parents had. So essentially the parents spend their whole lives saving up all this money to see the, the cause the money spent on things that aren't, aren't tied to them. So for me, I, Veronica and I look at it like, 99% of what, whatever we wind up with is just going right out um, to uh, causes that we believe in. And from the beginning, I think at Creative Planning and, and both Veronica and I personally have been focused on those less fortunate. So I believe in the capitalist system. I'm a very proud American. Democracy is better than all the alternatives. I think Churchill said, you know, it's a terrible option until you compare it to all other options. I'm sure I, I butchered that quote. But Look, everything's not everything's not fair. You know, we were born on third when when we were uh, you know born into the households we were born in, and we're not oblivious to that. And at Creative Planning, we work with a lot of people that are very successful. Some of whom got there completely on their own. Some with a little help. Some with a lot of help. So at Creative Planning, we've we've spent our time giving to the part of the group people that are never probably going to be our clients. Uh, and so I, I'm proud of the fact that uh, a very large percentage of our work workforce uh, is involved in mentoring kids that we provide full ride for your scholarships to uh, mentoring them sometimes from grade school all the way through college, uh, covering them for all four years. Uh, all of the annual events we've had at Creative going all the way back to the inception have been focused on the inner city from 2004 uh, to today, whether it's delivering, you know, a thousand Thanksgiving meals every year or building a place to distribute basic goods and services to kids and, and, and people that need them that aren't covered by food stamps things like um, soap and shampoo that is unbelievably not, not covered by food stamps. Um, we, we've just been involved in causes like that at Creative Planning from the beginning, and that's never going to change. And obviously, the, the events of this year, I think, have highlighted to a lot of people um, you know, a lot of these things, but we're just going to keep um, doing what we're doing and try to make a difference where we can. Well, congratulations on all your your great philanthropic work and your success uh, building creative planning and, and that really cohesive culture that you've created. I'm going to let Anthony uh, hop back in if he has oh, any uh, final I, words before we let you go. We're going we're gonna to wrap up in a sec, but Peter, I have one last question for you, and it's really about the psychology of money. 
because we have brilliant people that lose all their money. And then we have janitors that are able to save and they die with $8 million in the bank that they give out to charities and their family. And so if you were going to give somebody some advice about the psychology of money, what would you say? Well, I think that money, I mean, I think very, very few people have a healthy relationship with money. And there's a lot of research that shows that how we all deal with money has to do with how we grew up uh, in our households, right? So some people feel like they're not worth something and they spend the money on things that make them feel like they've got a, a sense, sense of worth. Some people grew up in households where there was a sense of scarcity. And so when they get money, they want to leave it in cash and they want to hoard it and they want to protect it. And, there's, and they live in fear uh, of losing it. Uh, some people, uh, it becomes this narcissistic scorekeeping score uh, type of measure. So I, I really think that most of us have most of us have a problem with money. So having somebody who's like capable of earning it, investing it without screwing it up, you know, making a mistake like going to cash in March, which a lot of people that were invested according to a Fidelity study did in March, having people who can invest it well, who can then leave something to charities or their kids or are comfortable giving money away uh, and also able to enjoy it themselves. A lot of people just can't spend money on themselves. That person's very rare. And that person's a very happy person, right? And so that to the extent we can help at all, impact our clients, save better, not make an investing mistake, enjoy their money for themselves and others, that's the most rewarding part of the job is helping people take the money to match the goal. That's what creative planning is all about. I mean, most money managers, they're trying to get alpha all the time. And obviously we want to perform for our clients. But for us, the primary goal is of performance is you want X to happen, and we're going to do these things to make it happen. And so anytime you can help somebody realize that, um, you know, is a, is a beautiful thing. But, but to me, money, it's like alcohol, whatever you were, before you took the five drinks, it just became amplified, right? And so to the extent that you can know, know thyself and make better decisions, you'd be a happier, happier investor and a happier human being. Amen. All right. Well, Peter, fantastic uh, to have you on. Salt Toss, we got to get you to one of our live events. And uh, congratulations on what you built and what you're about to build. I think that for creative planning, frankly, the best days for you guys are ahead because you're, you're right at the intersection of everything that clients want. So uh, we wish you great success, and I hope to see you at a live event. Yeah, I look forward to that. And I'm enjoying the picture of your kids way more than the fake George Washington <laughs> behind John Darcy. We had to get all the right. dig in before the I had to get that in there before we left. All right. Well, That's God fake. bless you. Thought... Peter. All right. Thank you, Anthony. Give it back yeah, to Jim. Don't let him convince you it's fake. Come on. Um, yeah, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. And, and thank you, everybody who tuned in to today's Salt Talk with Peter Malouk of Creative Planning.